All right, I invite you to sit back down now as we prepare for the scripture reading this morning. This morning's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 6. The desert and parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nathan, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. We have this week and next in our Song of Solomon series, then that ends and we begin a new series entitled Summer Shorts, which doesn't mean I'm wearing shorts in the service, but means we're looking at some of the shorter books in the Bible that are often overlooked. Uh, be, and each of these short books you'll come to discover asks a very profound and important question. And so we, we'll begin that in a couple of weeks, but we have this week and next in Song of Songs. Please join me. We'll pray together before we look at the text. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls today, and thank you for the beauty of the day and all that uh, resides in your word as you seek to invite us to, to be those uh, receiving your love. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would... Uh, would bring that invitation to life this morning to each of our hearts and that you would give us the courage to be um, recipients, vulnerable recipients. May the wind of your spirit move here, shape us to be people of hope who are healed by your love. We pray in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. I want to begin by telling you a story. Uh, we live, some of you know, in the mountains east of here, up at Snoqualmie Pass. And a couple of weeks ago, it was a kind of rainy day. Rarely happens around here, but it was a rainy day. And, um, and walking down our street is a group of like half a dozen people, ranging in age probably from 45 to 70. And they've got giant binoculars, big telephoto lenses, recording equipment, and, and we're watching them. They're walking down the street, and then they stop in front of our house. Like I'm sitting working on my sermon at the kitchen table and I look at the window and there's a guy with binoculars <laughs> kind of looking in the window. And I, so I said to my wife, Don, I said, man, I don't know what's going on, but can you go figure out who these people are, what they're doing here? I feel kind of gazed upon, right? So she goes out and comes to discover that these people are bird watchers and they're, uh, they're here on a bird watching journey, which is okay, that's a thing. I guess people do that and that's fine. But what, here's what's interesting. Like they're, all of them are from Pennsylvania and they're out on our street at the pass looking for birds. And so I go, there's a lot of birds between Pennsylvania and Snoqualmie Pass. Like why are you coming clear out here? And they were like this. Well, there's certain birds that, you know, you're only available here. So they're like, they're into it, right? And, you know, it's easy to kind of throw stones at a level, but I can't throw stones because here's the reality. All of us are into nature in different ways. We're all into it. Some, who gardens in the room? Raise your hand. You said gardeners. Who uh, hikes in the room? Raise your hand. Who boats in the room? Raise your hand. 
Who climbs in the room? Raise your hand. Who skis in the room? Raise your hand. I mean, who does everything mentioned? Raise your hand, right? So, like, we're almost pantheistic. We love, I mean, here's the bottom line. We collectively, Seattle culture, we love, we love nature. And, and then, not just nature, but we tend as well to gravitate toward life. I mean, we all perk up in the springtime because there's blossoms, right? And, we're, you know, we're walking around. If when you're walking Green Lake, you, you stop when there's blossoms. You stop when there's ducks. You stop when there's cranes. You stop when there's, you know, wrens and the, sound, the beautiful sound. That maybe you, and we're, okay, we're, we're absorbing nature and particularly life. And, in fact, in contrast to life, Chronicles of Narnia, if you know the children's book series by C.S. Lewis, uh, the judgment on the world is represented by it being perpetually what season? Not spring, winter, like the absence of life. And if you saw the most recent iteration of Beauty and the Beast, the Disney film, same thing. Where's the castle? The castle's stuck in a place where it's perpetual winter. So uh, there's something in us longing for life, right? And this is why we garden and hike and have giant binoculars peering into my window because we want life. Okay, now, so the question on the table is why, like what is it in us? Because it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a lifelong disciple of Jesus or a total atheist, it's all the same. We all want this life. We, like we're enthralled by flowers and blossoms and life. Why? I think the answer is in the Bible. Uh, if you go to the Bible, you find at the beginning in Genesis a garden and Adam and Eve in a garden. You go to the end, over in the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, there's a, tr- there's a river running through the new city and there's a, tree, there's a tree of life with the leaves producing healing of all the nations. Life here, life here, and in between there is a story of judgment and where there's judgment in the Bible, there's desert. And where there's restoration in the Bible, there's life again. We just saw it. Nathan read Isaiah 35. When restoration comes, even the desert will bloom, right? Uh, some of you are t- uh, too young to know the old band Seals and Crofts. You guys remember? Yeah, some of you are, some of you are shaking your hands, like three of you in the room. If you're over 60, you know Seals and Crofts. And you know, that, you know they have this beautiful song called Even the Desert Will Bloom. Like quoting Isaiah. Now, they're not some you know, Jesus people band or anything like that, but they're saying, look, It's in us to long for life. And the absence of life is a sign of judgment. Again, all through the Bible, judgment. So, you know, in Amos, there's injustice, oppression, bribery, idolatry. And so how does God get everybody's attention? A, read it sometime, Amos chapter 4. A, famine. B, uh, drought. C, you know, plague. Everything dries up. In the book of Joel, locusts, they come in and there's no grapes. So where there's judgment, there's a lot, like everything turns into a desert. And where there's restoration, everything turns into a garden, all through the Bible. And and then between these two gardens, the beginning and end of the Bible, there's the Garden of Gethsemane, where in that garden, love wins. Jesus chooses obedience to the Father and says... Though I want to do what I want to do, not my will, but yours be done. And, and the will of the Father was that love would triumph, not by power, oppression, greed. Love would triumph by laying down one's life. And Jesus wrestles that out in a garden. And then in a garden tomb, rises from the dead to show all of us that there is more to life than this life. That though we die, we'll live again. So garden, 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 four gardens. If you're podcasting, come to church sometimes. You'll understand. I was just signaling there, right? So, so um, there you see it. 
And, 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 and so in order to restore the garden that is the cosmos, uh, we're called to be people who are nurturing life. The question on the table this morning in Song of Solomon chapter 7 is this. How do we nurture life? And this is the thing that I'm going to say to you. It's so very important. Like I, for me to nurture life and, and, and to become a person who's fruitful, like I want to be a garden. I want to be blossoming and, and effusing the aroma that is Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 2. For me to do that, what do I have to do? I must receive the love of Christ. I need to receive the love of Christ. And so, that, I mean, that's the fundamental message this morning is we're called to receive unconditionally the ravishing, infinite love of Christ. And we're going to see this in chapter, um, chapter 7 of Song of Solomon. So we're going to do this by looking at the story first in this chapter. It's a very interesting story. Uh, and then we're going to look at the meaning. But we're going to look at more at the, at the story itself and some observations then the meaning will be very brief at the end. But let's look at the story. Here, here, here's what happens in chapter 7. He, it's two lovers. If you know the context, you've been with us a few weeks. He expresses affirmation of her. So first thing, he affirms her. Second, he expresses desire for her. So he expresses desire for her. Third, she reciprocates and invites him in. She says yes, basically. So he affirms her, he says he wants her, she says yes. That's the story. Now let's unpack that because it has tremendous application for all of us in the room, married, single, young, old, all of us can learn from this because we gather here this morning, married, single, however we are, we gather here as the bride of Christ, right? Jesus says that we collectively are the bride of Christ. And so there's a mystical union that all of us are called to experience as a bride. It doesn't matter if you're male or female this morning, there's a bride part for every one of us in the room. And the bride part is here learning to receive the love of the beloved. And that's what we're going to learn in this text. So here's how it starts. He affirms her, and interesting, uh, she's a dancer apparently, and so uh, he's been watching her dance at the end of chapter 6, and because he's watching her dance, he affirms her not head to toe this time, but toe to head. We saw earlier, when he affirmed her, a few chapters earlier, he started with her hair. Remember, your hair is like a flock of goats or something like that, uh, and then he goes down to her teeth, which are like sheep, and her neck, which is like a crazy tower and all that stuff. He's going lower and lower. This time, he starts at her feet and works up. He goes, hey, look at your toes, look at your hips, look at your, look at your, you know, and he goes on. And in fact, he says something here. <laughs> what he says is so interesting to me is uh, like, and don't, don't ever do this at home, guys, if you're going to affirm your spouse, don't say this, your belly's like a heap of wheat. Don't say that at home. <laughs> There's even a book now, right, called Wheat Belly, uh, and it's not flattering. It's, it's actually not flattering, but it's flattering in the context. So, hey, love your toes, love your hips. Uh, love your navel, love your uh, wheat belly, <laughs> right? And your breasts are like two fawns, so he's affirming. Now, we're going to focus this way, mostly focus on how this is intended to affect our relationship with God. We've often talked throughout the series about horizontal love relationships, but this morning, it doesn't matter, all of us in the room, as the bride of Christ, this is the word of Jesus expressing like affirmation of you, and more than affirmation, desire for you. So here's the reality. If you're here this morning, God is calling you through Christ into union with himself. God's calling you into union with Christ, like a, like a love relationship, a union. 
And the, and the starting point of this love relationship is affirmation and kindness. And so Jesus affirms you. This is the point. Jesus affirms you. Really, really, actually important. So we're going to stop there. It's, I mean, I could give you many examples of Jesus in his humanity affirming someone. But the one that we're going to look at this, this morning as an example, many of you know it, some of you don't, is the story of this guy named Zacchaeus. Now, there's a guy, Jesus had an encounter with a guy named Zacchaeus. If you know the story, Zacchaeus was short, uh, and if you know the song, he was a wee little man. It's a Scottish song, apparently. So uh, Zacchaeus is a wee little man, and, and he was a tax collector. So here's a deal that you know. First of all, he was short, and in no culture does anyone aspire to be short. So there, there was a social thing about shortness. Let's just, we'll just name it. So he's short. So that's not socially appealing. And then on top of being short, he's a, he's a tax collector in an occupied country. In other words, he's t- collecting taxes, not for the benefit of the Jews, but for the benefits of the Roman Empire that has occupied uh, this, this land. And so he's hated for being a tax collector in an occupied country. And even if he were in Rome, everybody hated tax collectors the way some of you do, right? And so, um, like tea party people, you know, whatever. It's all good. Um, so so they, they, he was hated. Hated because uh, he was there on behalf of Rome. Hated because he was a tax collector. And so, kind of socially marginalized as well for his stature. All that stuff. And so then he just wants to see Jesus. Doesn't want to engage, doesn't even want to talk to him. Just, I just want to see him. I hear he's going to be passing through. So he climbs up into a tree so that he can see Jesus. And then Jesus, you know, he sees Zacchaeus. And he says to Zacchaeus, he shouts out. And like he's got plenty of followers, right? He, he could just engage with the people. Like I hear this as a pastor. Hey, go with the goers. You know what that means? Like, hey, you know, hang out with the people who are, you know, gung-ho, all in, think you're amazing, you know, visionaries. Don't bother with a guy in a tree. Oh, no, Jesus is trying to teach us something here. What does he do? Hey, Zacchaeus, he shouts it out. Like, everyone hears it. Zacchaeus, he might as well say, hey, short guy who's hated by everybody because you're a tax collector, come down out of the tree because I'm not dining at the Pharisee's house or the religious leader's house, or the National Young Speaker's house, or the, or the seminary student's house. I want to go to your house. I want to hang out with you. Kind of a nobody, right? I'm coming to your house like he invites himself over. <laughs> I'm going to your house today. And, and that, you know, radical affirmation and expressed desire results, if you read the story, results in Zacchaeus' transformation, <laughs> He spends time with Jesus, has a meal, and then at the end of the meal, Jesus never, in the text, never says, give everything away. He never says that. No, like he's affirmed, I want to be with you. I delight in you just the way you are. And as a result of receiving transformation, he now has the courage, excuse me, as a, as a result of receiving affirmation, he now has the courage to say, I'm giving half my possessions away. And if, I, and if I've taken any more than I should have from anyone, I'm repaying him four times or two times or whatever it is, read the text. But like, I, he's transformed, but the story didn't start with transformation, didn't start with repentance. The story started with affirmation. And I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus affirms you, you got to receive it. And she, like she receives it here, she says in uh, Song of Songs, verse... Uh, chapter 7, verse 10, this is what she says. I'm my beloved's, and before she said this, I'm my beloved's and he is mine. She said it 
you know, three other times. I'm my beloved, see his mind. That is mutuality. Not this time. This is one of my favorite verses of the Bible. He affirms her. Toes, you know, hips, navel, wheat belly, breasts, hair, everything. And then this is her conclusion. I'm my beloved and his desire is for me. This is gigantic. You know what, you know what he, she's saying here? She's saying, uh, like, he does, he's, I'm not a project to him. He doesn't want to, he, like, he doesn't want to fix me. His, when, he, when this text says his desire is for you, you know what that means? That means that if you are the only one in the world, I, Jesus, want to be, I am delighted, delighted to be with you. Now, to put this so that you can understand this, I want you to think just for a minute about those times when you have offered hospitality in your house to people out of obligation. Has anyone ever done that? You've had people over, you didn't really want to have them over. Does this ever happen? Anybody? Raise your hand if it's ever happened to you. Yeah, of course. I mean, we all, we all do this a little bit. And because this is the Pacific Northwest, we're all super polite and we lie and we say, hey, yeah, good to have you here. Glad you're here, you know, and then we pour the tea or the beer or the wine or whatever we do, and we cook a barbecue, and we make small talk, and maybe we even go a little deep, whatever we do. We do, we do our thing, and then they leave, and then, and then you look at your spouse, and you're like, this, oh, finally. <laughs> Haven't you done this? Glad they're gone, right? You're super friendly the whole time, but you actually didn't want them there, okay? So, like, I sometimes in my spiritual life have thought Maybe this is what Jesus thinks of me. Do you understand? Oh, yeah, I'll tolerate Richard, but man, he's, he alternates between being full of himself and full of shame, and, you know, like he's egocentric, and then, and then he's beating himself up all the time, and he's, so, he's needy, and he's got these, you know, secrets that nobody knows, and his wife thinks he's messy, and he doesn't put his socks away, and he's picky with his food, and uh, yeah, well, so, but, you know, I, I am Jesus. I gotta love everybody. So sure, uh, you know, I'll do. Yeah, I can. You know, I can handle Richard for a little while. I mean, I guess I can. I am God after all. So I can love the ugly ones. I want Like I want you to get over that and understand the, the power of this. Because when she says, "I am my beloved," his desire is for me. It means Jesus doesn't tolerate you. Jesus delights in you, and I, I. I if I stopped right there, it's enough this morning. Sadly, I won't. I'll keep talking. But, but we always remember, we need to not only hear that, but everybody in the room needs to come to a point of believing that, right? First Corinthians chapter 3 says it this way, so then let no one boast in men. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Why? Because his desire is for you. You are important to God, not because you make six figures or five or four. Not because you have a, a PhD or a master's degree or a bachelor's or nothing. You're not important because you behave well. You're not unimportant because you behave poorly. You are not your degree. You are not your marital status. You are not your gender identity. You are not your spiritual gifts. You, 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 are, not, you are not your success. You are not your failing. You are not your calling. You are not your net worth. You are beloved, desired. Everyone in the room. Can you receive that? Be careful how you answer. <laughs> I'm going to argue that most of us know. On a good day, maybe. But often, we, we just can't receive it. And yet, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that this is the most fundamental and foundational truth that we, must, the, the, that we need to learn. I'm, I'm creating right now this 
pyramid that I want to work with my staff on, and up at the top is fruit. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah, how God is using us to change the world. Great. It's cool. And yet, here's the deal. Many of us in our lives, we want to live in the upper half of this pyramid where we go, oh, yeah, you know, how can I be more effective? And how can I, you know, leverage my gifts? And how can I make a difference in the world? And how can I fix my marriage? And how can I, how can I you know, do more, be more, sell more, be known more? And I just want to say, stop. <laughs> like before that, there's something right down here. And the something that's right down here is this. If you never did anything ever again, Jesus' desire is for you. Really? Oh, no, no. He, like, he wants because, like, I'm on the team. Well, we know how teams are. Like, you drop three passes, you're gone. Oh, no, this is, you're not on a team. Uh, you have a lover who will love you for the rest of your days. When you succeed, when you fail. When you're healthy, when you have cancer. When you're fruitful, when you're barren. <laughs> you have a lover. I'm my beloved's. His desire's for me. <sighs> we got to hear that. And so that desire is expressed by him in verses 6 through 8. How beautiful and delightful you are, he says. You and all your charms. Your, your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters. So, he says, I will climb the palm tree. You know where this is going, right? Like, I will climb the palm trees. I will, like, I want to eat the fruit and taste the fragrance of your breath and your, and your mouth, which tastes like the best, best wine, what, he, what he's saying there is he's expressing his desire to climb the palm tree that is her body and make love to her. That's what he's saying, right? So this is him expressing uncensored desire to enjoy her. So this is much more than, hey, you know, God is deeply committed to you, and so he will spend time with you. No, no. This is, uh, look, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, there's this phrase, hey, the marriage of the lamb has come. Jesus is the lamb. We're the bride. The, the marriage has come. Christ is marrying us, his church. Why? Watch this. He sees you. Yes, he sees you. In all your weakness and all your glory. In, in all your beauty and all your brokenness. He sees you and knows you and knows your weakness and your failure and your dreams and your hopes and your success. And he longs, if I can say it this way, it's spiritual, it's mystical, but it's true. He longs to taste you and know the delight of union with you so that the fruit of Christ's life can be born through you, the bride. That's Jesus. And so it's one thing to be in awe of the fact that your spouse loves you. But, but then the, the, the challenge com comes for, from some of us in, in, yes, I know my spouse loves me, but I'm having a hard time receiving that love because I, because I know myself too well. And so I can't, like I can't receive it because I've grown up in a world, you know, of judgment. And so I, yeah, does, does God love me? Yeah, but he's actually secretly disappointed. Where do we learn that from? Well, we learn from each other. Often we learn it from, and I'm sorry, it's Father's Day, but often we learn from the dads, at least in my home. I'll give you one example. I mean, tw 21 years ago or so, I was a candidate here. And so I'd, sp I'd spoken, and then my wife and I and my three children were staying in a motel up by Northgate Mall somewhere. And, uh, 
then the church was having a meeting. They were going to vote on the fate of Richard Dahlstrom. Whatever. So we're, in, we're, we're over there, and then they're doing their thing here. And then they call and say, hey, why don't you come back to the church? We've got to tell you something. So uh, I'm, I'll never forget. We're going down the stairs from the motel to get the car. And, you know, my kids are active. They, like, they've climbed Mount Rainier. They, they do backcountry skiing through avalanches, and they, climb, they rock climb and boulder and all this stuff. But I've always, though I love all that, I've always had a fear of my kids running on pavement. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> I don't know why. But, like, yeah, do you want to climb? Fine, just don't run on the pavement. I never want to see that. Like, because I dream about them fall, like tripping and then falling on their face. And uh, so no pavement running. So anyway, we go down the stairs. And then, there, so, the, so then one of the kids, I don't remember which one, goes, hey, race you to the car on pavement. And I go, no. And then they run. They just take off. And wouldn't you know it, my son falls and breaks his elbow. And we're supposed to drive over here to Bethany to hear whatever. So he's now screaming in pain. And immediately, of course, where does he, who does he run to? You guys know the answer. He runs to his mom, right? Because what's Donna like? Oh, my poor baby, you know. And then, but before he can get to her, I intervened. No, running on the pavement. How dare you? Now I got to miss my meeting. I got to take you to the hospital. You know, whatever. Oh, I can't believe it. How do you run on pavement when I told you not to? Listen, this, so why do I tell you that story? Because all of us have run on the pavement. Do you understand? We've all of us have. You know, you with your pixels and your fake sex, or you with your drinking, or you with your temper, or you with your greed, or you with your cynicism, or you with your self-righteous veil underneath of which is bitterness and even a doubt that God exists. We're, we've all been there. And I'm here to tell you, in the name of Christ, Jesus never loved you because you didn't run on pavement. His love for you is because he is delighted in you. And it is then for us to learn to receive vast, unconditional love. How hard is that? It's really difficult. After I did arrive here at Bethany, uh, life became more stressful than it had ever been for me, and I went to a massage therapist for the first time ever. And so I'm laying on my stomach, and this guy is trying to massage my shoulders. He goes, you're the tightest shoulders I've faced in a very long time. He says, would you just try and relax a little bit? And the more he would push, the more I would tense up. And then he flipped me over. Some of you probably are massage therapists in the room. I don't know. But he flipped me over. And he said, he looked at my thing. He said, you're a pastor. He said, listen, Richard, I know this because I know pastors. Like, you, you, this is what you want to do. You want to give and give and give and give and give. He said, can you just take an hour and receive? Man, you know what? That was the best sermon I heard in a long time, and I preach. <laughs> and it wasn't my sermon. <laughs> Can you just relax and receive? It's, it, it, it's taken 20 years. I'm not there yet. Maybe you're not there yet either, I don't know. But I, but I am close enough to there to know this. If I want my life to be a garden, fruitful, effusive of the aroma of Christ... It doesn't start with performing. It starts with, though I know I've run on the pavement, though I know I've blown it, 
It starts with this, I want to receive. I'm just going to receive. And belief, by faith, that God is delighted in me. Right? Believe that I'm loved, that I'm desired, that, that, that I'm invited. So he, did, he, he expresses desire for her. Jesus expresses desire for you. Behold, stand at the door and knock. Will you receive? And then, so, and, and, and here's the thing. In the text, she does receive. So um, in verses 10 to 13, she says, uh, again, verse 10, my favorite, I'm my beloved, his desire is for me. So then she says to him, I'll paraphrase for time, hey, let's get out of here. You know what she means by that. Hey, let's go, let's go. And what she's really, this is what she says. Let's rise early. Well, let's, let's leave. We're going to go out of the country, spend the night in a village, and then we're going to rise early and go to the vineyards, and we're going to make love in the vineyards. That she says it. So yeah, he says, hey, I want to climb your towers. She's like this, yes, let's go. I, I want to be with you. And so she's allowing here her lover to come ravish her and fill her. Now, let me just be very explicit here, because in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 37, you see this in a, in a divine human way where an angel comes to Mary and says, hey, by the way, you're going to give birth to Jesus, and he's going to be God, right? And though you're a virgin, this is going to happen. And when he says that to her, she says, I am your servant, be it done to me according to your will. If you, God, want to ravish me so that I'm filled with divine life, ravish me. You're God. The answer is yes. I, I will receive your love. I will allow your love to fill me, impregnate me, and transform me. So she says, let it be done to me according to however you want to do it. Uh, fill me. And so let me just ask a question here this morning because it's a very important question on the table. She says, yeah, can, can God love me unconditionally? Can God ravish me? Yes. Can God create in me divine fruit? Here's her answer. Nothing is impossible with God. Verse 37, Luke chapter 1. Yeah, God can love you, even though you ran on the pavement. God can ravish you. God can desire you. You, programmer. You, marketing specialist. You, person with body image issues. You, person with porn issues. You, guy who drinks too much. You, husband who's using his wife rather than loving her. Can God love you? Yes, yes, and yes. And in fact, if you want to be transformed and break free from those things that have defined your life, it doesn't start with breaking free. It starts with receiving love. Down here, bedrock is my identity. I'm loved. Because when I'm loved, I'm open. When I'm open, I receive. And the life that I receive impregnates me with nothing less than the life of Christ and now transformation begins. But it all begins with receiving. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 15, abide in me and the promise is this, you will bear fruit. Just allow me to fill you with my ravishing unconditional love and I will change you. So does she want to be filled with him? Yes. Verse 7, or verse 11, chapter 7. Let's, hey, let's go out of the country. Let's rise early. Go to the garden because the garden is a place of intimacy and, and, and that's the place where love wins and life wins and will it change me? You bet. When, when my wife and I have enjoyed union, at least in our case, it changes dramatically. She becomes pregnant and pregnancy changes life, Right? And then children change life. And so we're transformed by the very act of union. 
Yeah, that's the way it works. So the, the beauty of her is she can embrace her identity as God's beloved, even though she knows her own brokenness. Just that's what Zacchaeus could do too. And Peter. And hopefully you. The most beautiful stories that I know of are not stories of people who said, yeah, oh, I was broken once in the past, but then, you know, I signed a card when I was nine, came forward, you know, got baptized under the drum set there, um, and now it's all good. I, no, brokenness. Yeah, I was broken. I got a great testimony of what God did in my life when I was 15. Now, like, she's still broken. Her brothers are mad at her. She's socially marginalized because she's in a classist world. She's a worker. She's an agricultural worker. But though she's got issues, she's beautiful, but her beauty is because of her identity as God's beloved. One of those you know, powerful moments in the uh, wilderness ministry that my wife and I ran up in the Cascades came one night uh, when a girl shared her testimony. This gal's from the South. I'd picked her up at the Vancouver International Airport in BC. We're driving across the border. We see Mount Baker. I said to her, we're, we're going to climb that mountain in, in six weeks. We're going to climb that mountain. And she, she, at the moment, like the first thing she had said, there's snow in July, snow in July. Never heard of that. And I said, yeah, we're going to climb that. We're going to climb that mountain? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. I, like she said, I can't do it. And then she kind of begins to open up and share her story in the car for two hours of driving on the mountains. You know, I just got out of the hospital last week. Like I have an eating disorder. And the doctor just, released, just made the decision, released me to come and be in this program. So I, like I'm kind of weak, I don't think I can do it. Well, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. Well, first hike, first week. We get back from the hike. She says, hey, I'm gonna go call my mom. She calls her mom, bursts into tears. I wanna go home. This is too hard. Her parents beautifully said, Give her one more hike. And if it's still too hard, then that's it. We'll get you home. Oh, well, second hike, then the third, then the fourth, and then the fifth week. The, you know, we, the way that people share their testimony is we have an ice axe with a little candle lantern hanging from it. And if somebody places it in front of you, you've got to share your story. Fifth week, she shares her story. She had, she had no, no one knew but me. And she said, you know, six weeks ago I was in the hospital uh, with an eating disorder. And then she shared stuff about her family and her background. And she said, I couldn't receive love from anyone. But then said, I love this. She said, now I know that even though I'm broken, I'm loved unconditionally. Even though I'm broken, I'm loved unconditionally. That was the beginning of a really you know, powerful transformative journey for her. Many of us in the room are good at denying our brokenness or good at being defined by our brokenness. Neither of those work, friends. The invitation, even though I'm broken, I'm not defined, I am not my brokenness, I'm beloved. I'm not my addiction. I'm, I'm, and, you know, you shared last week ways God is moving you. I'm not, my I'm not my eating disorder. I'm not my body image issue. I'm not my greed. I'm not my addiction to porn. I'm, I'm not my failure. I'm not my divorce. 
I'm beloved. Start there. Start there. Because transformation only happens when we can, with empty hands, receive. Not because we did anything, but because God is love and wants to ravish us. So, that's the story. Now, what does it mean? Well, we're living between two gardens, and all of us in the room, every day, are, we're either becoming ourselves part of the garden story or we're becoming a desert. All of us are. And so, here, here's the, this, the whole thing is an invitation. It's an invitation for you to fertility. Because remember, this is Jesus, John 15. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Well, how do you abide in Christ? It means you learn to receive Christ's love. You just learn to receive it over and over and over again. And, and, and so when Satan is right there, a little ghost on your shoulder saying, hey, yeah, you, this is who you are, addict. This is who you are, overweight. This is who you are, shame. This is who you are, failure. This is who you are, broken relationship. That is, that is not who you are. Who are you? Beloved. Start there. Always start there. So we, we, we need to learn to receive the seed that is Christ's life. Then, there's a, there, that leads you know, logically in the second point, which is all of this is about mutual relationship. There's a healthy realization on the part of both parties that only together can life be created. Does this make sense? Like, we, the church, are in need of the life that is Christ. The life that is Christ actually, can I say it? He wants to use us. He wants to fill us with his life so that we can make a difference in the world by riding bicycles to Spokane, by going to Costa Rica, by going to Rwanda, by helping the kids who will gather here uh, uh, for the kids' summer adventure, by being the presence of Christ in a world desperately looking for this kind of unconditional love. Can you be that? Absolutely. (laughs) Only as I receive him, though. And the result, beauty, man. Beauty. Last week, uh, you can't, many of you wrote in these books uh, and you named things where God is calling you to move away from those things. And th- this week, I'm going to say, I'll help you take another step to moving away. And here's how. Maybe you named last week addiction or shame or body image or marriage. I read the books yesterday afternoon. It was beautiful to read and pray for our congregation. But here's the deal. Whatever you named... This is, that's not who you are. Who are you fundamentally? Down here at the bottom, the bedrock. What's your bedrock identity? Don't be defined by your failure. You are not your failure. You are not your shame. You are not your broken marriage. You are not your addiction. You are not your abuse. Who are you? <laughs> I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. You are beloved God's dear child wants to ravish you I am not my brokenness I'm beloved and so you know here's a way to close maybe name your, your brokenness a way that Satan tries to define you just, and then come and leave it here symbolically as a way of saying and I just, you know, just write it and I tore it off the ball a few people did it earlier I'm not my, bro- I'm, I'm not my addiction I'm not my greed I'm not my fear. I'm beloved. I'm beloved. How beautiful is that? That's where transformation begins. Jesus, meet us now as broken people who needn't be defined by brokenness because we belong to you (laughs) and your desire is for us.
profound. Give us the grace and courage to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.